Some of you have thought about this before, and many of you have thought about it many times, but I want to remind you of what the person sitting beside you or in front of you or behind you just challenged you to do and what you just challenged every person sitting around you to do. You were prophetic just a moment ago. You gave a exhortation and, and everybody else gave it to you. So I remind you of what you've just challenged everybody to do and what everybody's just challenged you to do. Even if you've thought about it before, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriends you. Let's ponder that together today. Today's sermon is going to come from the Gospel of John chapter 1, and it prayerfully aims to do two things. To confront us with the Jesus that we think we're so familiar with, and specifically in that first vein to confront us with the inestimable immensity and power of Jesus. And the second thing is having confronted us with his inestimable immensity, he's bigger than you've ever thought, and power stronger than you've ever imagined, that the second thing would be that in these few moments together that the Holy Spirit would catapult our faith upon our Creator. But very specifically, the Creator revealed to us in Scripture, that is the very One who became incarnate to recreate us, to restore us unto God, the One who is our crucified, buried, now risen, and reigning Redeemer. With that in mind, John chapter 1, I'll be reading verse 3. Hear the word of the living God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Would you join me at the throne of grace as we ask for God's help yet again? What a little sentence and what an eternity's worth of revelation. Father, we ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would illuminate our mind and heart now to not only understand what is being said, and we certainly ask for that, but to apprehend by faith the one spoken of. We affirm now in your presence through prayer that we understand you didn't write us a systematic theology book, point one, point two, point three, and that John's not set up that way. We don't want to rip this verse from its surrounding context or from the whole of the gospel. And we do ask that, as is appropriate, you would allow us to zero in on what is revealed here without skipping over it or presuming that we already have that one figured out. Oh God, grip us, read us, search us, try us. Reveal Jesus to us. We pray in his name. Amen. As we begin our meditation today, I do want to back up just to one application from last week's meditation on the Logos, the Lord Jesus, who is the eternal second person and divine redeemer. 
And what I want us to back up to is not verses 1 and 2, which we gave our consideration to last week, but what John the Baptist says in light of the eternality of Jesus in verse 15. And it's just an application. I want us to begin here, and I think you'll see why. What would a true apprehension of the nature of Christ Jesus produce in us? What what would John 1 do to you? And to me, if we believed it. Look at verse 15. John the Baptist, we're told, testified about him. That's the Lord Jesus, the Logos. And this is what he said. He cried out saying, quote, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So do you see the logic of that verse or the theologic, God's logic in that verse? coming to us from the ministry of John the Baptist and his message, the word for, in verse 15, for he existed before me. Translated in the ESV, NIV, CSV as because. He has a higher rank than me and there's a reason for that. There's a logical reason for that. He existed before me. Greek, hati, because, since, for. So here's John the Baptist, sanctified Christologic, Christ-centered thinking. If you and I truly believe, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What would that do to you? It would do, verse 15, The incomprehensible infinitude of the Lord Jesus, his everlastingness, his being the one spoken of by the father in ages past, Malachi chapter five, his being the one whose days are, quote, from long ago, even from the days of eternity, Micah 5, 2. If we join John the Baptist in the happy affirmation, I'm not talking about your systematic theology. I'm talking about your heart embrace of Jesus. If you join John the Baptist in the happy affirmation of Christ's eternality, it will be very, very obvious to you and to everybody around you that you actually believe that and that I do as well. What would it produce in us? Humility. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is exalted more than me. He's higher than me. I bow low in his presence because he existed before me. Quick little biography of John the Baptist. He was the six months older cousin of Jesus. How can somebody older, humanly speaking, than another person say he existed before me? It's obviously because John the Baptist understood that this one who became incarnate never began. He existed before me. The force of verse 15 is emphasizing that Jesus's preexistent nature produced humility in John's soul. Therefore, he has a higher rank than me. Meaning the older cousin bowed before the younger cousin 
in earthly measurement because the younger cousin existed before the older cousin in essential nature. So here's my application point that I want to make right out of the gate today. And I'll preach it to me and just invite you into my own prayer closet for a moment. If Jordan Thomas's gazing upon the nature and gospel labors of Jesus of Nazareth, the Logos, the Word of God, does not produce in my life an increasing humility, then I might be figuring out Bible verses precisely, but I am not beholding Jesus by faith. You will become like what you behold. And when you see the majesty of the heavens condescend for your redemption and wash the feet of His disciples and become the servant of servants and then climb up on a cross to rescue you from your rebellion against God, you cannot be proud in His presence. You might know the chapter headings of systematic theology books that you have read and be able to cite them forward and backward. You might have read Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God or Calvin's Institutes or steeped your mind in the Athanasian Creed. But if the grand doctrines of Christology are not cultivating true humility before Jesus of Nazareth that insists, demands that the exaltation of Jesus must happen in your heart, then you may truly know true Christian doctrine. You may be a faithful ambassador of the truth, but you have yet to experientially enjoy the God that you presume to know so well. When John the Baptist understood who Jesus was, his inescapable conclusion was, Ikonine dioxinine, emide elatustai. He must increase. I must decrease. So we don't come today presuming that we know this Jesus. We come today saying, Spirit, reveal him, please, through your word, lest we perish. With that in mind, the two considerations I would like for us to look at today do come from verse 3, and then the application point comes from verse 10. The two points that I'd like for us to consider from verse 3 are first, the comprehensive work of the Lord Jesus as Creator. The comprehensive work of the Lord Jesus as Creator. And second, the consecrated will of the Lord Jesus in creation. So his work and his will, the first will focus on what he does, the second will focus on who he is. First, the comprehensive work of the Logos as creator. Again, verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. As we look at Jesus today as our creator from verse 3, let's begin by taking a step back to see something 
that connects the Gospel of John to the original creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Of course, we know, and we just touched it briefly last week, that John does want us to think about Genesis and the way the Bible begins because John begins with those very same words in the beginning. Genesis 1-1, John 1-1. John means for our minds to connect. But there's also a more subtle connection to the creation account of Genesis in John chapter 1. And many believe that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, is intentionally weaving into his Gospel the six days of creation from Genesis 1 and the seventh day of God's glorification as we find in Genesis 2. Here's how it works. Genesis 1 and 2 unfolds over seven days. So also John's gospel opens with a look at the life of the Lord Jesus over the course of seven days. Maybe you've seen this. Just as the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 culminated with God officiating the first human wedding ceremony, John's first week culminates with Jesus performing his first miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Look at your Bibles. John chapter 1 verse 23 through 28 implies the first day. John the Baptist is out there baptizing people, proclaiming the glory of Christ. We know that's the first day because look at verse 29. The next day. Look at verse 35, the next day. Look at verse 43, the next day. Then we're silent for days five and six, which correspond to the death and burial of Jesus. Then look at the seventh day, John chapter two, verse one. We know it's three days later because it says on the third day. Do the math, you got seven days. So many believe that John's gospel not only opens with a cue that he's reflecting on Genesis and wants us to do that in the beginning. He also opens with a look at the first week of the incarnate creator's work of redemption. With that in mind, let's zero in on that first point. The comprehensive work of the Logos, the Lord Jesus as creator. Verse three is positive and negative. All things came into being through him. Positive. Apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. Negative. Don't be insensitive to God's word because we feel like we're so familiar with it. That we've heard it so many times since we were many of us small children that God created the heavens and the earth. Would, would you meditate afresh with me on this staggering reality for just a moment? It's vitally important that you see Jesus of Nazareth as your creator. Not just God generically. Don't think of God generically. Don't start with your best thoughts of God and try to get those infinitely better until you reach what you conceive him to be. No. The best way to undo all that you thought was true of God is to read the Bible. And he starts with his thoughts about himself, not our thoughts about him. And I said it's vitally important that you and I 
embrace the Lord Jesus as our creator. The reason that's vitally important is because if you don't embrace him as the one who made you, then you cannot embrace him as the one who saves you. Here's how that works. Let's start with the aberrant theologies, the atheists contend that we're one big cosmic accident. But the scripture declares that such a person is an epic fool. The fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14, 1, there is no God. The pantheists, including those who embrace the Buddhist theology, would say that all of creation is God. But the scriptures assert to the contrary that they have sinfully exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1. So the atheist and the pantheist are on a collision course with the God of the universe in a very unfavorable meeting. The dualist embrace something like a universe that they see in the Star Wars movies, two equal opposite powers, two forces at work against one another in a big cosmic struggle for control, God versus the universe. However, the scriptures declare, Hebrews 2.8, all things have been subjected to Christ and the Father left nothing that is not subject to him. The deists maintain that God created a universe and then he just stepped back out of it and wound it up like a clock and let it run its course like a master watchmaker. He just created us and he's letting us do our thing, detached from the creation. However, the, the Bible boldly declares as our elder affirmation of faith tries to squeeze it down. Quote, God upholds and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles. From the forces of nature to the movements of nations and from the public plans of politicians. Parentheses. Jesus is on his throne today and he'll be on his throne at the end of November. He governs all things, including the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. The deists would say that God is out there, but he's just an uninvolved deity. Scripture unequivocally teaches that God not only made but also sovereignly controls the universe for the glory of his name and for the good of his people so at the end of the day even the bad things that have happened to any christian at any time owing to their own sin or the sins of others all of that will accumulate for the believer an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison god is not only in control of it he is using it for our good and the Bible teaches that the creator, Jesus, entered the world which he created for the purpose of redeeming sinners through his own death and resurrection. So apart from all those aberrant views of God, Christianity stands not in a line of a bunch of philosophies, not in a line of a bunch of religions. It's just one of the other smattering of a thousand religions you can choose. Christianity stands categorically by itself solitary in its claims that demands that we embrace Jesus of Nazareth as 
the creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. When John declares the positive of verse 3, all things came into being through him, and the negative of verse 3, apart from him, nothing came into being that is come into being, we are to see and believe the comprehensive scope of Christ Jesus' creative genius and power. You can't find one thing outside of God that the Lord Jesus did not make. And whatever man has made, And he has endowed us with all sorts of incredible creativity. Whatever man has made, he made man the maker of it. Jesus made his own mother. Space, time, matter, things seen and unseen, physical, spiritual, intangible things, the invisible realm. Colossians tells us that Jesus has made it from personalities those intangible aspects of each one of us to the planets and the far off quasars that our best telescopes have never yet discovered. Wind and water, holy angels and the high peaks of the Alps, all things are created by Jesus. So when you read Genesis 1-1, when you read Genesis 1-1, God intends for us to see Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3, it's the Logos who exercised God's creative plan. The Lord Jesus is the one who is personified in the book of Proverbs chapter 8. Spoken of in this way, this is so beautiful, listen carefully. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way. Before His works of old, from everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. When He had not yet made the earth and fields, nor the first dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundaries so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So the Bible teaches unequivocally, unapologetically, that the Lord Jesus is the creator of all things. But what does the Bible teach teach us that he used to create it all? Jesus is the uncreated creator from everlasting, John 1, verses 1 and 2. But what material did he use to create it? The answer is, once again, the answer is, that's the answer. Ex nihilo or nihilo, the Latin for out of nothing. The Bible declares to be true. And all Christians believe. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He simply spoke. And it is. So the first thing I wanted to underline is from verse 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ is the 
creator of all and comprehensively has created everything. Nothing exists that Jesus hasn't created. The second thing I wanted to focus on are the prepositions in verse 3. The consecrated will of the Lord Jesus in creation. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is such precision language by the Holy Spirit. John is not in this single verse excluding any of the other two persons of the triune Godhead in the work of redemption. God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. Rather, with laser precision, John is hinting to us here what other writers of Scripture were inspired to make plain concerning the role of God the Son in the grand work of God's providence called creation. Namely, God the Son was the agent through whom God the Father made all things. Notice the words through Him and apart from Him. The ESV would render this same verse, all things were made through Him and without Him. Nothing was not anything made that was made. So, it requires some thinking. May the Holy Spirit help us. It's really plain. It's not super complex. It's not a, you know, unsolvable equation. But it does require some thinking. As we read the Scriptures more and more carefully and we have our own hearts and minds read by the Scriptures, the beauty and grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ shines in more brilliance and detail than we could have ever conceived on our own. It's one thing to say Jesus made everything. It's another thing to say His will has always been perfectly submitted to the Father so that the Father gets all glory in empowering the Son by the Spirit to carry out all the grand works of God's providence. It's even more precise and profound truth to say that the Lord Jesus voluntarily, happily, is the one through whom the Father created all things by the powerful working of the Spirit. Let me allow Leon Morris to give us three sentences to explain what I want to try to focus on in our remaining few minutes. John does not say, Morris writes, in verse 3, that all was made by him, but rather through him. This way of putting it safeguards the truth that the Father is the source of all that is. The relation of the first two persons of the Trinity, Father and Son, in the work of creation is of great interest. Creation was, Morris concludes, not the solitary act of God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. All were at work, and Morse writes, and for that matter still are. The Father created, but He did it through the Logos, through the Word. Let me say it as simply as I can, what I believe the Bible teaches about the role of Jesus Christ in creation. I believe that the Bible teaches that from all eternity, the Lord Jesus knew and rejoiced in the Father's good pleasure to glorify Himself by spilling over in creation. So the Bible tells us what I believe Jonathan Edwards put into a great sentence to title a book, 
the end for which God created the world, the purpose for which God created the world was his own glory. That's Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. It's black ink on white paper. It says that God made everyone bring my sons from afar, bring my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I've made, whom I have created for my glory. God made everything for his glory. But here points out that the Son of God, knowing the pleasure of the Father to bring glory to himself through creation in eternity past, volunteered, as it were, to be the channel through which the Father gained such glory. Put another way, God the Son was jealous to embark on any activity that would bring honor to his Father. And in such a posture, the father said, I'm sanctified imagination here, said something like this in eternity past to his son. I would be pleased to create a universe and within it a special place with my own image bearers who I will give to you as a bride if you will undertake the work of their redemption. To which the son said, it's my sanctified imagination again, in eternity past, if such a work will bring glory and pleasure to your heart, my Father, then by all means use me to accomplish what most glorifies you. Does the Bible speak this way? Repeatedly. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Here it comes. Through whom. He, that's the father. Made the world. So who made the world? Yes. The father, the son, the spirit, the father made it according to Hebrews one, two. But I thought you just said John 1 3 says everything came into being through Jesus. We did say that. Hebrews 1 2 specifies for us that all of creation is the work of the Father through the agency of the Son. Why? Because in all of God's grand works of providence, and there are three predominant grand works of providence creation, redemption, and consummation. In all of God's grand works of providence, he does all that he does as father through his son by the spirit. The word translated world in Hebrews 1, 2, through whom the father made the world. Ionos. It's not cosmos, not ball of dirt that you're sitting on, not earth. It's Ionos, the ages. The forevers, the world system, the entire universe, all that exists, the Father made it through the Son. That's why I've titled the second point, the consecrated will of the Lord Jesus in creation. Jesus is happy for the Father to get all glory and the Father is glad to use the Son as his agent of demonstrating his glory to all of creation. As our creator. So. 
We read the scriptures more and more carefully. Everything, everything, not only the ball of dirt on which we now sit that's suspended out here in the middle of an enormous space that would cause smoke to come out of our ears if we even tried to think about it for just a few moments, everything, the far off galaxies of the universe, even the invisible realm created by the Father through the Son. Listen to Colossians. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. Friends, when the Bible teaches that the Father created all that He created through the Son for His glory, for the honor of the Son, Colossians 1.16, it's the Bible's loving way of saying to us, you'll never be satisfied until you give every ounce of who you are to all of Jesus always. You're made for Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, the body's not for immorality. It's it's like your stomach is made for food. Your body is made for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. Therefore, he bought you with his own blood. So glorify him with your body. You'll never be satisfied until Jesus is everything to you. Listen to the way the Bible continues to speak about the work of Jesus in creation. Chew on this verse. This is one verse. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So did the Father or the Son do it? Yes. Read it again. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Now you may have been bored to tears by my best efforts up here in this measly little sermon. But even as we're over here preoccupied, sometimes with grand things and sometimes letting our mind wander into daydreaming things, the angels never have a lack of focus. Their attention is always riveted upon the one who's seated on the throne. And in Revelation 4, we find 24 elders, I believe, representing the totality of all the people Jesus will save. 12 Old Testament tribe, 12 New Testament apostles. I believe that the 24 elders represent the human redeemed, the tithe of humanity that will be the bride of Jesus and trophies of his grace. What are they saying to him? right now as we've said here and before we even woke up this morning long after we go to bed tonight and if you live to be another thousand years old they'll still be saying worthy are you this is to Jesus maybe I'm in unison with them worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed. Do you see 
that the representatives of the redeemed humanity, as I see them, are incessantly praising the enthroned, glorified Jesus because He created all things and by His own will they exist. Well, why did He make everything? Friends, we said He made it for His own glory, but let's be clear about one essential truth concerning God. He did not make you and me or anything else because He was needy. He is needless in His self-sufficiency. He is happy eternally in the triune fellowship of the Godhead. God has never been lonely. Father, Son, and Spirit in exuberant, joyful, Koinonia, expressing agape love one to another from eternity to eternity. He is the self-sufficient King. But He made everything not because He was lonely or needed companionship and not to divert His attention away from His own joy in Himself, but to invite us into his joy. The seventh day of creation is actually the climax, not the sixth. It's an amazing thing that God has done as the pinnacle of his creative genius to form man distinct from the animals. I'm not minimizing that. That we, unlike any other part of created order, are stamped with the imago Dei. We have the image of God like the moon to the sun. We're made to reflect his glory. That is amazing. But the pinnacle of the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is the seventh day, the day of rest. Why did God rest? Was he worn out six long days of making all the universe? No, the Bible teaches he didn't even exert effort. He simply spoke and it was let there be and there was let there be and there was. He spoke it all into existence. Why did he rest? To do what he had been doing from all eternity and to invite all creation into that happy bliss of joining God in the happiest place of the universe, the God-centered delight in God. He made everything and everyone so that all of it, the mountains, hills, trees, valleys, birds, fish, the sky, the planets, and everything in between, to be able to join God in the much making of God. And if you don't worship Him, I say with a broken heart, I'm not saying as a, as a I got you or to gig you, I'm saying with a broken heart, if you don't worship Him, God doesn't lose, you do. He will be praised. He will be glorified, but He made you to worship Him. So I said earlier in all God's grand works of providence, creation, redemption, and consummation. He accomplishes all of those grand activities through the agency of His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Son of God has always been eager for the glory of the Father, and the Father has always been pleased to appoint the Son as the agent through whom He works by the Spirit to glorify Himself. So here's our application. Jesus made it all perfect submission to the will of the Father. The application is, look at the incarnate love of the Creator. 
in human history. Do you see verse 10? Verse 10, what a sad commentary. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. That's what we've considered thus far. But do you see these final words? And the world did not know Him. He was in the world. The world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. How sad a commentary. How blind are we? All of humanity swept away into a sea of deception, not even being able to see and recognize our God when He stands in front of our face. But not only how sad a commentary and how blind is humanity, but how gracious a God. And then finally, how receptive are you? The world didn't know Him. Is that going to be the epitaph over your eternal tombstone? Dear sweet so-and-so, did not know Jesus. What's your epitaph going to be? The Bible teaches us that just as the triune God was united in the work of creation with the Father planning, the Son accomplishing, and the being done in the Spirit's power, so we also see our salvation is a unified work of the triune God. But in creation, God exerted no power. Fatigued, zero. He simply spoke and it was. But in redemption, in redemption, God unsheathed all of His might. He flexed all of His muscles. He didn't use some power. He used the full extent of the exertion of His almightiness. He unsheathed, the prophets tell us, His righteous right arm. He didn't speak our salvation into existence. He sent His Son, our Creator, to redeem us. Think about God the Son calling the earth into existence. Let there be light. And then think of the intricacy and detail of everything that sprung into existence. All the living creatures, all the inanimate aspects of the beautiful creation that God has made. Now allow your mind's eye to see the globe, as it were, spinning around out there in an orbit. And you're just watching planet Earth spring with vegetation and life and all sorts of beauty. And as that globe spins, slow down its rotation. Until in your mind's eye, you can see the Near East. And then zero in again and pause the spinning of the globe until you can focus in on the little land of Israel situated beside the Mediterranean Sea. Picture, if you can, the location of Jerusalem and that hilly territory. Look even more closely until you see Just outside the city of what would become Jerusalem, a hill. That fateful place where Jesus died for your sins. When the Lord Jesus created the universe and He called planet earth to be and He filled it with all its beauty and grandeur and He made man in the image of God, He fashioned with His own creative ingenuity and genius, the hill of Golgotha. From the beginning of creation, the Creator knew 
that there would come a day when he became incarnate and carried his own crossbeam up that hill to be crucified on it. At the beginning of creation, our first parents in the Garden of Eden took from a tree that Jesus made and they ate the forbidden fruit and they plunged the rest of humanity into a tsunami, an abyss of sin and damnation. And everybody who's not rightly restored to God, the one and only way will justly perish forever. So God the Father sent the creator of that first tree that our parents plucked the forbidden fruit from. The Father sent the creator of that tree to be suspended on another tree as a sacrifice for our sins and to become on the cross a curse for us so that we might taste now and forever the succulent fruit of the mercy and grace of God for all eternity. In your mind, finish this verse. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will and be glad in it. That's Psalm chapter 118. Do you know what it says right before that verse? And do you know what it says right after that verse? In Psalm 118, right before and right after, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's not talking about today. It's not talking about August 2020. It's talking about the day that Jesus died for your sins. How do I know that? The verses right before it and the verses right after it are quoted by all the gospel writers to speak about the passion of Jesus. Let me read it to you. The stone which the builders rejected. Psalm 118.22 has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The next verse. Oh Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Now listen to this. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.26 We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's the song they sang as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey. This is the day the Lord has made. The Lord has done what? Made it. The Creator made not only the creation, the Creator also made the day of His own cross. This is the day the Lord has created. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I put all my hope in my crucified Creator. It reminds me of Frederick Lehman's The love of God is greater far. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We've talked about Jesus being the Creator. And being the one who even created the hill upon which he was crucified and creating the day of his own death so that we would rejoice and be glad in it. But I got to ask you, has he created something else inside of you?
You see, in God's endless creativity, He's still creating. I don't believe that there's new earths and new planets. I don't think there's another people for which Jesus intervened. He died once for all, the just for the unjust. To bring us to God. I believe that we're the people that he's made in his own eternal wise prerogative to redeem for himself, to have trophies of his grace, to join him and an eternal delight in him. But I'm saying he's still creating. And I wonder if he's created something inside of you. Listen to this verse. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Has the Creator turned on the light inside your heart so that you see the glory of God in the face of Christ? When John wrote his Gospel that we're now considering, he wrote it some 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And when he thought back on the life and ministry of his Redeemer, he had one word. The Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Have you seen His glory? Has the God who said light shall shine out of darkness shown in your heart through the Gospel of Jesus Christ to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ? Just as in the time of creation, when the Creator God said let there be light, so also in the new creation, the Word of God, the Logos, the speaking revelation of God is the light of the glory of God who expels our spiritual darkness. That's the next two verses of the Gospel of John. It's been so hard not to preach those two today. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being in Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. John opens his gospel here, the first three verses, as we've considered thus far, with a portrait of the Logos, the eternal, verse one, second person of the triune with God, verse one, divine, who is God, verse one, who is the creator of everything that exists, verse three, the reason he starts with this portrait of the Lord Jesus is because He's leading us somewhere. And He wants us to know that the eternal, divine Son of God who created everything, including you, is also the crucified, risen, glorified King of grace. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with Him? Would you ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend you? Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In God do we trust nor find Him to fail. Think of Jesus. His mercies how tender, how firm to the end. Our Maker, Defender, Redeemer, and Friend. Dear brother now in glory who poured so much into my life, Gave me some fruit for meditation that I hadn't been able to dig deep enough in yet, and I'll leave you with it. He dwells above the twinkling stars in radiance untold. 
yet condescends to name them all, the silver and the gold. What wonder that he stoops again to look upon the earth, even down to lowly sinful man to bring Messiah's birth. Yet lower still, he makes a home with those who feel their shame and gathers us within his arms, though holy is his name. We don't do this often. I think we've done it two, maybe three times in the 13 year history of this church. I want to give you an invitation today. We give it every week. It's repent and believe. But I want to give you a specified moment right now for you to run to Jesus. The same Jesus who created you, who became incarnate, truly man, in order to die on a cross for your sins, who rose from the grave and now sits enthroned at heaven's height and will one day fold up the creation like a t-shirt and hand it over to the Father and have for himself a people to enjoy him in a new heavens and new earth for all eternity. That same Jesus is making himself known to some of you today. And maybe some who think that they've been fine with Jesus for a long time. Maybe today for the first time you could enter into a real love relationship with your creator and redeemer. And that you could start to sing with the saints of old, His mercies how tender, how firm to the end, my maker, my defender, my redeemer, my friend. If you don't have a real relationship with Jesus, I'm not asking you if you've ever prayed a prayer, been to church, or a member, baptized. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you belong to the King of glory? Have you yielded yourself, body, soul, and mind? Does He have happy reign over all of your heart and life? Are you desiring for Him to increase and you to decrease that the glory of Christ might be seen, known, and enjoyed in your life now and forever? Have you turned from your sin and all your efforts to save yourself? And have you put your faith in and only in the risen Jesus? If you've never come to Him by faith, I offer you this moment. I'm not going to guide you through a mechanical prayer. If John 6.44 is happening in this room, you'll run through a brick wall to get to Jesus. If John 6.44 is happening in this room right now, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If God the Father is reaching His almighty hand down into your little heart and pulling you to Jesus, you're not desiring to come to Jesus because you're smart. Or because you came up with a good idea. It's because the God of the universe who created it all is now wooing you into the happy privilege of a relationship with Him through Christ. So we're going to bow our heads and I'm going to give you a moment to ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend you. Let's pray together.
the Spirit of God's dealing with your heart, you just continue to have your moment of honest, personal interaction with Jesus as we sing a chorus, as you continue either singing aloud or silently prayerful in His presence, whatever the case is, consider these words. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.